I'm Jeff Cohen. Yosef Resnick is the firstborn son of secular Jewish parents. He's worn many professional hats over the years. Musician, student, sofer, educator, EMT, mashkiach, health and wellness counselor, and last but not least, rabbi. He joins me today to discuss his rather diverse portfolio. Yosef, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I have to ask you, am I leaving out any jobs that you've held? I just listed about 15 of them. Um, <laughs> well, I did hold a, a real estate license a few years back, and I worked in real estate briefly. All right. So one bonus one. So thank you for that. So let's take your story from the beginning. Give me a sense of your childhood and where you grew up. When I was very young, we lived in Queens, and then we also lived in Minot, North Dakota for a few short years when my father was a doctor in the Air Force. That's where my brother was born. And then we came back and we ended up in Rockland County, New York, uh, in a town called Suffern, which at the time was very, very secular. Now it's, it's becoming a little bit more like Muncie. So I grew up in the suburbs of New York with a brother and a sister. I'm the oldest of the three, as you mentioned. And we're all super close, very, very close family. And my brother and father are both musicians. So at around the age of... 13, because they both play guitar and other instruments, I took up bass guitar. And my brother and I played together, and our, our first band was together. So I grew up in the suburbs as a secular Jewish teenager, going to public school mostly, and worked in a music store, worked in a record store, but playing in rock bands was my main love and passion. What were some of the Jewish customs your family was or wasn't doing as you were being raised? Well, the only things we really did do... And I think one of my siblings pointed out it wasn't even every year. We celebrated Hanukkah with an electric menorah, I think. Mm -hmm. And we did a Pesach Seder. Like many secular families, it was not probably on the night of Yom Tov when you're supposed to have a Seder. And also it was not a um, technically correct Seder. But it was a family Seder, and it was fun. And it was my grandfather, Olive Shalom, led it. And he knew, some, he knew Yiddish. So, but that's about it. We never went to shul. Never went to shul. I wasn't bar mitzvahed officially, and um, that's how I grew up. Wow. So did that make you feel like you were sort of missing something when you were growing up, or you were kind of okay with it because well, it's what you knew? Well, good question. The bar mitzvah, I don't think, when as it was approaching, as my 13th birthday was approaching, I don't think I felt like, oh, I should be doing this. But I did have, well, all my Jewish friends were in Hebrew school and had bar mitzvahs, and Looking back on it, I, I probably felt some like something was... I felt an empty feeling. I don't know if I could put my finger on it at the time. I had the same feeling as you because I, I think our childhoods were, were pretty similar. And when my friends started having bar mitzvahs, my parents decided to get me a tutor who taught me transliterated Hebrew so that I could just get up there and sound like I knew what I was doing, but it wasn't really right, legit. Right, It's one step closer than what I had. But yeah, that's one way to do it. It's better than nothing. So let's go into the teen years a little bit. In my school... A lot of kids were getting into a lot of different things from dating and drugs and like the kind of things you hear about in public school. I'm wondering if you were having a similar experience in those years. Um, yes, totally similar. <laughs> I mean, I was playing in a rock bands too. So, uh, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. That's the, that's the, <laughs> the triad. And that was my, that was, I was a lousy student in school, in high school and elementary school, lousy students. And that's where my interest was, mostly in music and whatever was associated with that scene. Were you thinking as a teen that music was going to be your career, like you wanted to become famous and a, a star and all that kind of stuff? Is that where your head was at in those years? 
Yeah, totally. <laughs> and uh, my brother and I, especially, we were, and we still are, totally into music, especially from the 60s and the 70s, but mostly from the 60s. But we grew up with all the classic rock bands, and that was what we both wanted, I think. So you were a dreamer, which is great. It's great at, the, at that age to be thinking, I'm going to be the next big star. There's nothing wrong with that. So, But I just want to go back to your education for a moment. In looking at your background, I understand you also went to a Waldorf school for a period of time. So where, where is that right. in the journey? So when I was, I was going to mention that, actually, because it was a little closer to New City. But when I was in high, public high school in Suffern, I think I was in 10th grade, and I didn't like high school at all. So my parents had a... They had a friends who had a child in uh, Green Meadow, Waldorf School, which is in, I think it's in Spring Valley. So we went over for an interview and like I, all of a sudden, I, like the next day I was starting private school at Green Meadow and <laughs> they put me back a year too. So I did two years at Green Meadow and then in, by the end of the second year, I couldn't stand it there either. And then I went back to Suffern High School and graduated from public school. But wasn't there a story when you were at the Waldorf School, I'm wondering when the holidays came around, were there, were there expectations about what you had to celebrate regardless of what your religion was? Maybe a little bit. I, the only thing I remember there is um, they had a secret Santa program. Like right around Christmas, everybody gave each other <laughs> gifts, and it was called Secret Santa. And I, had to partic- I participated in that. And there might have been one or two other little things like that, like in chorus, the songs they sang in chorus and things like that. But I was so secular, it didn't bother me a whole lot. Right. I at least had Hanukkah Harry, so there was uh, some understanding of my religion in public school. Yeah, we didn't have a Hanukkah Harry, no. (laughs) (laughs) So I understand also around this time, you did have a friend who was Jewish who gave you some temple experience, maybe not like a traditional Orthodox one, but tell me about that friend you came across and the kind of temple that you were experiencing. That was my next door neighbor, Scott, who I'm still in touch with, who for some reason we were in Manhattan once and he took me to on this jaunt through a Hare Krishna temple. And that friend went to Hebrew school. He was a smart guy. And I think he briefly, for for a little while, he published like a little uh, newspaper kind of thing. He called it the Daily Shema. That's what he called it. And I was so ignorant. (laughs) I didn't even know what that word. I didn't didn't know what that meant. I was totally not in that world at all. But I had another one of my friends in Queens who we once, maybe I went to his bar mitzvah, but I remember going to temple for, probably this is bar mitzvah. But otherwise, no synagogue in my life. So how does a guy whose focus is music, not loving school, not feeling such a strong connection to these few and far between Jewish experiences you were having. Is there a moment where you start to take like a different kind of interest in Judaism? Yeah, there is. And after college, I went to NYU and my sister was at Brandeis. So after college, I moved up to Boston. And once I was in Boston, I had an empty feeling. The, the only way I can describe it is I had an empty feeling and felt like I just needed to pray to some greater being. And... I started kind of synagogue hopping and just trying out different kinds of synagogues. This was preceded by a phase of kind of new agey stuff where I was into various new age books and things, and I read a lot. And those those books actually really opened my eyes and kind of set the scene, I think, and prepared me for Judaism. So I'm starting to hear this story a lot, that someone who's seeking but doesn't know where the answers are 
you just start to maybe go to the self-help section. You start to listen to motivational speakers. You just sort of go through these different categories and different religious philosophies, trying to look for something that connects with you. So you were being like turned on to this idea that you were like seeking, but you weren't quite finding what was really speaking to you. Yeah, I was, I started reading the, like this, especially the Seth Speaks books, if you remember Seth Speaks. Sure. And also Autobiography of a Yogi. Those books just really opened my, my eyes and just showed me that there's much more to this world than what we see in front of us. And that kind of prepared me for what came later, which was Kabbalah, Hasidut, and all the things that I still love. And so sometimes when people are searching, they try to go back into their family history even and see, is there something in what my grandparents were doing, my great-grandparents, that might give me some background as to where I came from? Did you do that as part of, of seeking? I didn't really actively seek out that kind of thing, but at some point somebody gave me a picture of my great-great-grandfather. And when I saw this picture, I fell in love with this, with my great-great-grandfather. And I really, I've carried this picture with me for like, I don't know, 25 years now. And I sometimes, I, not lately so much, but I would put it on the table and like I was alone, especially after COVID started, there was at least one, one Pesach when I was just by myself. So, I, and I had this picture up like on the table with me and I just feel like... Um, uh, his name was a wolf bear, uh, but wolf bear and I, I just feel like we have a connection and a, and a relationship. And I, I did once contact the cemetery association in Lamza, Poland, which is where he lived. And I tried to get some information about him, but at the time I, I wasn't able to. But until I saw this picture, I don't think I really had any desire to look into my past much. So when you see that picture, and, and when I was just looking at it, it, it clearly looks like someone who is an observant Jew. So are you looking at it and thinking, oh, maybe there's something here? Or is it just, wow, that's interesting about my history? I'm wondering, like, the specific impact it had on you. The main thing I think that it made me realize is that I've always thought of myself as the first observant person in my family, which in a sense I am. But when I saw this picture, I realized I'm just kind of picking up the torch from my great-great-grandfather. I, I, there was a lot, okay, there was a little break, a lull in the chain of transmission, but I'm, I'm not the first observant Jewish person in my family. I'm continuing from where that transmission broke down. And so prior to that, you were mentioning college. So you were studying music when you were at NYU? Yeah, I went to the Institute of Audio Research in the village, and then I transferred to NYU where they accept their credits, and I I managed to graduate with a degree in music and with a focus on audio engineering. So then when you graduate, you're thinking, I'm going to be an audio engineer, or you go all in on starting a band? Good question, because audio engineering, I think I knew, even when I started at the Institute of Audio Research, like, this is the wrong thing. I was determined to do it because it, it was so exciting, but it was totally the wrong career path for me. And I was always more interested in playing. So after college, when I moved up to Boston... I did work in one studio a little bit, but I was much more interested in, in performing and playing with the band. So tell me about the, the band, what kind of music they played, like how could you describe it to us? Well, I played in more than one band in Boston, actually. But the, and So the first one was called The Apples, and the drummer, who I'm still friendly with, after The Apples, we put together this band called The Jigsaws. And we were like a 60s-influenced, kind of like The Kinks, that kind of uh, just catchy garage rock. I like how you said, by the way, we put together this band called yeah. the Jigsaws. <laughs>
Okay, so you were playing in the Jigsaws in your time in Boston. Is that the only band you were in, or you then went into other bands in the future? Well, after that band, I left when I started to become um, observant. At some point, I said I wouldn't play on Shabbos anymore. And then I went to Israel after I got married the first time. But after I came back from Israel, I settled in Morristown, New Jersey, and I got into a band there, which we called the Beatniks, spelled like the vegetable, B-E-E. Like B-E-E. I thought that was funny at the time. <laughs> That's like the Maccabees. But they spell it the regular way. Yeah, the Maccabees, the Beatniks. We, we weren't quite as big as, as they are. But um, So that was a Jewish band, and we recorded one CD. That was mostly original music. I wrote a few songs, and my friends... Israel Rosencrantz, Oliver Shalom, wrote a few songs. And then we did a couple of covers also on the CD. So let's bring this to life. Why don't we play a clip for our audience so they can hear exactly what this kind of music was like. Great. So what's the name of the song we just heard and, and what was the inspiration for it? Well, that song is Adir Hu. That's actually um, one of the covers, not one of the originals. At the time, Shlomo Karbach was one of our big inspirations. So we did a couple of his tunes on the CD and that's one of them. I think it was that song, maybe it was another one, but uh, we were included at some point a few years ago, somebody heard us and put us on a Hanukkah compilation. And I believe it was because of that song. Nice. So in bringing up that band, you mentioned that you became observant, you met your wife, and you went to Israel. So we have to slow down for a minute and now go into how those three things happen that then lead to this type of music. So did you meet your wife when you were in Boston? And, and how did that come about? Yeah, my, that's my ex-wife at this point. But um, at that point, we were dating. And while we were dating, that's when I started to become observant. And I was also playing in a band at the time. But was she observant when you met her, or she was not observant? She had a, She wasn't orthodox. She had much more of a background than I did. But I, I kind of pulled this towards the really observant lifestyle. But what triggered that? Because if I'm thinking back to your story, you were kind of jumping around to different shuls and, and seeking, and that's one thing. But to then take what you're learning and say, actually, I want to live this way, and talk to your wife about you know, raising a family that way. How did you get from one point to the other? Right. Uh, good question. Well, it, in the process of shul hopping and trying reform, conservative, all different kinds of um, synagogues, nothing ever really touched me very deeply until I went to Chabad in Kenmore Square in Boston. And as soon as I set foot there, it was like, I just knew I was, I had found my place. And at that point, I started going to Chabad pretty much every Shabbos for a year with my ex. And at that point, then we got engaged, we got married, and that's when I ended up leaving that band that I was in. At some point, I said I won't play on Shabbos anymore. So that's like Friday night to Saturday night. That's kind of, a, <laughs> it's a big time for, for bands. And when I first started, as I was becoming more and more observant, the first I told them, I won't rehearse on Shabbos, but I'll do a gig. And then at some point, shortly after that, I said, I, I can't do anything on Shabbos anymore. And I had to explain to them what that meant. But 
that was the conflict that I was having. And at that point, I was engaged and about to get married, and the band just got into the um, the WBCN Battle of the Bands, which is a big, big deal, and band, that's like every Boston band's dream. And I left the band right before that. And so you also mentioned this conflict with Shabbos. What are some of the other things you're doing from an observant perspective at that point as you're as you're taking on more? I was trying to do everything that I could. I was keeping Shabbos. I was putting on tefillin every day and not a whole lot different than I do now. Maybe even some more things. <laughs> and then the journey takes you to Israel? Yeah, we went to Israel and I ended up learning in Kolel in Sfat. And then eventually we were expecting our first daughter, so we came back to the States, and I ended up in Kolel in Morristown. But when you went to Israel, were you thinking you were going to stay there, or was it just going to be part of the experience for a year or two, and you always knew you would come back? I'm not sure we had an answer to that question, because we got one-way tickets to Israel. But I think it was more like, when we come back, if we come back, it's kind of open-ended. We just That was my idea. Like, let's go to Israel and learn, because... I had never spent any time in yeshiva other than a week here, maybe, and like a week in New York. But other than that, it was like finding opportunities to study. But this was like my opportunity to really immerse myself. Yeah, I feel that all the time with my kids because I didn't get the yeshiva experience. And I watch how the fact that they've had it since preschool, how embedded it is in their life. And I always think, man, if I could just get a year, two years, three years to just kind of put my life on hold and really deep dive into the studying, what a difference it could make. Right, right. And it's hard. I was in my late 20s, and it's, as you know, it's as an adult, it's much, much harder to do that kind of thing. But Baruch Hashem, it all worked out. I started my journey of learning, which I continued when we came. We were in Israel for less than a year, and then I came back to Morristown and really, really threw myself into my learning at that point. Okay, so you're, you're in a kolel back in New Jersey. Yeah. But at the same time, you got to be thinking, what am I going to do for a career and, and support a family You have a kid at this point? So how do you go from studying to thinking about how you're going to make money? I'm still uh, pondering that question. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Kolo for three years, which is two years more than they want you to stay there. But I think for the first year or two or even into the third year, I wasn't really thinking. I was just so into my learning. And we were getting a stipend that Kolo was paying me, a you know, a stipend anyway, so there was some money coming in. And it wasn't really a question for me. I was just totally into my learning. Towards the end, it did become more of an issue. And then I ended up actually working for the yeshiva when I got out. That's when I got smicha, after I got out of college when I studied for smicha. And then I got a teaching certificate. And so it, it became more urgent, I think, after I got out of college. Do you end up getting smicha at that point? And you, are you thinking I'm going to possibly be a rabbi or it's just part of my studying and I just want to have it kind of as a credential? So for me, it was like a natural outgrowth of my learning. And I, it was like the next thing to do almost, like now to study for smicha. Was I thinking like I'll be a pulpit rabbi someday? I don't think I was thinking that at that point. I also, while, while I was in Kola, I became a sofer. I became a, I actually, I got smicha in safrus. So I was like, by, by the time I got rabbinical smicha, I was already practicing sofer. And so at the same time, you're having more kids. So are you telling them, look, this is where your mother and I came from. This is how we were raised, but this is how we're choosing to raise you. Like, how honest were you with them about your history and what you wanted for their lives? I think at the beginning, we weren't telling them 
either of us, I know I wasn't, sharing a whole lot about my early life until I became older. But uh, with them, I'm pretty, I'm pretty honest and share stuff about my early days, but not when they were young. Okay, but you chose to raise them kind of in a traditional observant way or that they're in yeshiva, they're going through like the same system and infrastructure that a, like a typical Orthodox Jewish kid goes through? Yeah, they were raised in a very traditional way. The only difference was their parents were, at least, well, speaking for myself, like an old, old hippie, <laughs> veg, you know, veg, now I'm vegan. I was vegetarian at the time, and we were homeschooling also. So they're pa- even though they're re- raised in a observant home from birth, like this, I think this is common with a lot of families, but when the parents are Bali Chuva, it kind of filters down, and they have that, appreciation and open-mindedness, I think, for where their parents came from. Okay, so now I have to go back to the intro where I mentioned all these different titles you had, because the, the only ones that you've hit on are rabbi, sofer. So how do you get into some of these other career paths along the way? Well, my father's a retired doctor, a retired surgeon, and I've always had, and my brother's an audiologist. And personally, I've always had an interest in healing and in health, mostly for personal reasons, and I mentioned I'm, I'm now vegan, and I've always had an interest in like macrobiotic healing. I used to be macrobiotic. And just that whole holistic health world, I had a strong interest in that. So at some point after we had moved back to Massachusetts, I decided to get certified in holistic health. So I did that, and then I developed an interest in auricular therapy, which is ear acupressure. And I got certified in ear acupressure and also some other modalities. So I kind of collected this toolbox of holistic health practices. And I still have a holistic, it's called the Helix Center for Health and Wellness. I have a website for it. So that's a very strong interest of mine. And then more recently, I just decided um, to focus more on allopathic medicine. And I got certified as an EMT. And I did work in a hospital. I worked briefly in a hospital. So you have all this health stuff going. What's happening on the Jewish side in terms of you have this rabbinical credential. So are you pursuing that at this point, like on parallel paths? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I think they converge in some way, at least. And then you also mentioned to me that you have an ex-wife. Does that mean there's another woman that comes into your life? Is that part of your story? Yes, I recently got remarried. To a, a wonderful, wonderful woman from California. We're married, and she lives here with me now. As the, She's the Rebbitzin here in, in this community. Wow, so if she's the Rebbitzin, that means you're the rabbi. So there has to be a story behind that, how a, a guy who's raised <laughs> secular is now the pulpit rabbi of a shul, which, by the way, you said when you got smicha, you didn't necessarily think that would be part of your story. So it sounds like it is. Well, now it is. I've been doing different things over the years, a lot of hashkacha, supervision of kosher food and teaching, a lot of teaching and different things. Um, I have a master's in education, so I've done a lot of that stuff. And then more recently, this position opened up. The rabbi who had this position last, I happened to work with very closely in in Hashkacha, and I know him very well, and he recommended me for the position and asked me, and so I applied for this position, and I got it. (laughs) Well, what kind of shul is it? Like, how would you describe it? The shul describes itself as a modern Orthodox shul. It's, it's mostly modern Orthodox. It's um, been around for a long time. Um, it's a beautiful, huge synagogue. Beautiful. Where is it located? In Norwich, Connecticut. 
And I encourage anybody who's listening to come for Shabbos, come visit. You're warmly welcome here. There's your pitch to help grow membership. Nicely done. <laughs> you slipped that right in. Okay, and you said your wife is the Rebbitzin. So what was her background and what were kind of the expectations of the observant lifestyle when you met and you got married? She converted to Judaism. That's the first thing. She, she converted years ago. She was living in a very observant community in Los Angeles. And she's a great Rebbitzin. She's very popular here and she's very good at it. And we just kind of fit together. She and I, just personally and religiously and spiritually, in every way, we really just kind of melded together very quickly. So, like, her work as a Rebbitzin is it's kind of natural. What she does, it comes naturally. So what are your family members say about a guy who grew up in, starting off in Suffern, was completely secular, and he's now an Orthodox rabbi leading a shul? What do people say when, when they hear that leap from one to the other? Well, <laughs> well, they say... I've heard this before about when people become observant, so they become orthodox, their their parents won't really appreciate it until they have children. Like that's when parents say, oh, now I, I love your lifestyle and all that. So I think my parents have, over the years, have been supportive and interested in what I'm doing. But I think once I got this position, I think they were really impressed and they, they love to see me in this position. And it's it's been great. It's been great for my family and friends to see it happening. I'm glad you mentioned how uh, people's perspective changes when you have kids, because I know when I was first becoming observant, my parents were focusing more on the religious pieces of it, mm-hmm. the wearing to fill in, the eating kosher, stuff like that. Right. But once we had kids and they saw what it was like for my kids to grow up around other Jewish kids and play with them on Shabbos and this whole community piece of it, their entire perspective changed from what are you doing to, oh, I, I get it now. I, I see why this could be attractive. Right, right. So that's kind of the same thing with, I got this position, and then they all kind of said, oh, we get it now. It's been, it's been 30 <laughs> years, but now we see why this could be attractive. Like Better late than never. Right, right. So what do you think about when you try to sum up your life and these different stops you've made along the way, like we said, starting secular, getting into music, you have this first marriage, you're raising a family, like you're thinking about all these steps along the way to where you are now. How do you sum it all up when you try to make sense of this journey you were on? I'll try to answer that question by first saying one, one of my favorite teachings of the Baal Shem Tov is that the journeys of the Jewish people in the desert in the Torah were prototypical journeys that each Jewish person goes through in their life. So the first journey is coming into this world, the last journey is leaving this world. In between we have 40 more journeys, and our task is to identify each step of the journey and to maximize it and make the most of each part of the journey. So I always think of that teaching, and I see very clearly in my own life each different stage that I'm going through, and I try to just be grateful for it and maximize it, and I see how it all fits together. It's kind of a natural growth and extension of the previous journey. What I'm doing right now, I've, I've never been happier. I've never been more satisfied. I, I just love what I'm doing now. And it's been a long, a lot of journeys, a lot of legs of journey, the journeys along the way, but I see this as kind of a natural outgrowth of all the effort and work that I've been putting into things. And now before I let you go, I'm going to ask you five super fast lightning round questions. You okay. ready? Sure. First one. Besides the standard things that people see at a Shabbos table all the time, chillant, kugel, 
What's your favorite kind of lesser known Shabbos food? Any dish with tofu in it with uh, spicy uh, Indian sauce on top. <laughs> okay. Tell me your favorite musician from the past who you just adored. Since I'm learning saxophone now, I'll say, I'll say John Coltrane. Okay, so let's go back into religion for a moment. Your favorite Hasidic discourse. I'll say Basi Lagani, just because it's so fundamental and so groundbreaking. So tell our listeners a little bit more about that. What, what would they get if they were delving into it? I think they would learn some basic ideas about our purpose in life and what we're doing here in this physical world. Okay, and the next time you get a chance to go to Israel, where are you headed right when you get off the plane besides the Kotel? I liked, I liked Tzfat. Tzfat is where I lived, and it's I probably Tzfat. All right, very good. Yosef, I really want to thank you for giving us some time today and joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.